welcome back, rich girls and boys, to another episode of The Money with Katie Show. Today, we are doing a relative deep dive on the 4% guideline for safe maximum withdrawal rates. Now, if you're not familiar with the 4% guideline, it's become a bit of a cult-like principle in financial planning that says you should be able to withdraw 4% of your total portfolio value every year, and you shouldn't, theoretically, run out of money over a 30-year period. Notice I said guideline and not rule. That sentence alone required like 47 caveats and footnotes, which is why this episode exists. We're gonna get into all of them. We will also hear from financial educator Brian Feraldi about the underpinnings of the stock market in general, because I think understanding how the stock market functions and rises and crashes and recovers and how it does it all the time is important context for the 4% rule and why and how we should all kind of feel optimistic about it. But let's begin at the beginning with Bill Bangan. Bill Bangan was the discoverer of the 4% guideline, and he never intended for it to be called a rule. He's clarified since then many times that this is not a science. It's not like physics, where there are these definable, observable laws of nature that dictate what's going to happen. It's really just the best estimation that we have based on how historical data played out. But in the 1990s, there was really no guidepost for how much retirees could withdraw from their portfolios each year. Some advisors told their clients they could take 6 to 7% since that was the average stock market return at the time. But Bill's clients would ask him, hey, how much should I withdraw? How much can I withdraw? And he realized there was no real answer in his CFP comprehensive exam books. So he did the analysis himself in a spreadsheet. It is safe to say that Bill Bangan was the OG freak in the sheets. By the way, it is cool for rough planning and projecting how much money you'll need to use average market returns every year and a static 7% estimated return each year every year over time is usually fine. But here's the issue with using average market returns when you're projecting your withdrawal rates far into the future. And the reason why tools that purport to tell you how much money you'll have down the road have the inherent shortcoming baked in including the ones that I make and sell, by the way, is that they often ignore sequence of returns risk. Bill knew this. He knew that certain economic calamities like world wars and great depressions, these outlier events, you know, like a global panorama, would disrupt your withdrawals. He wanted to be able to account for those things. Sequence of returns risk basically just means that if you have too many negative years in a row, it can be disastrous. Even if, overall, when you're looking at this super long time horizon that includes that very period, you'd be fine on average. Averages over lengths of time that are too far outside the realm of an average lifespan are basically meaningless. So to use a recent example, If you had a period like 2000 to 2009 where you were retired and you were in 50% large cap companies and 50% total bond market funds, and each year you thought, hey, my average return is going to be 7% after inflation, I'm just going to blindly withdraw 7% per year. You would have had a compound annual growth rate of negative 8.9%. That's because stocks ended that decade basically flat. They didn't really do much of anything. This is why sequence of returns risk matters. 
even though over a wide time horizon, you might average 7% per year when adjusted for inflation. If you have three years in a row where your real rate of return is a lot lower than 7%, you're drawing down on assets when they're at a loss and you're locking that loss in. So at the time in the 90s when things were popping off, people thought Bill's 4% guideline was way too conservative. It felt like they should be able to take out way more than that. But that decade was followed by another decade where stocks basically shit the bed. And it kind of makes sense intuitively, right? If you withdraw less than you can when things are good and you allow that extra, so to speak, to stay invested, you've got a better shot of weathering the storms later. But if you're withdrawing every penny you can every year, that means the next year that you're down, your principal balance is down, not your principal plus the returns that you generated in the good years in the past because you would have taken those out. So Bill basically back-tested, say that three times fast, Bill basically back-tested a ton of real returns, not made-up returns generated by a random simulator, not average returns, but actual returns from the actual market and drawdowns based on actual inflation data, not averages. For this research, he used a buy-and-hold portfolio that included large-cap companies and treasury notes. And the reason 4% was the number that ended up working, technically it was 4.125%, if we want to be precise, was because that was the withdrawal rate that worked in the worst 30-year period, not the one that merely worked in the best 30-year period. I'm going to redo that because Sam is going crazy in the background. He's got zoomies. And the reason 4%... Oh my God, can you stop, please? Sir, mommy's trying to provide for you. You can like see the tiny little brown speck like darting around and hear the little, it's like, oh, he's scared now. Yeah, that's what you sound like, buddy. Okay, I think we're ready. Sam's digging in his litter box. Uh, Can you hear that? Oh man, he's still going. Before Sam's Zoomies took over the show, we were talking about our good old friend Bill and the reason the 4% rule was the number that ended up working for him. Sam, are we good? Can we continue? Okay, good. It was because that was the withdrawal rate that worked in the worst 30-year period, not the one that just worked in the best 30-year period. The worst period to be a retiree, in case you're curious, was 1966 to 1995. So I want to repeat that one more time because I think it bears repeating. We often forget this. The reason 4% is the number that ended up as the guideline is because 4% withdrawals throughout history was the withdrawal rate that worked in the worst 30-year period on record, not the one that worked in the best one. This gives a lot of investors confidence that even if we experience a duplicate of the worst 30-year period we've ever seen in the market, the 4% rule is still effective. Now, it's also worth noting, because this is a deep dive, that the way the figure was calculated assumed that you calculated your cost of living at 4% of total portfolio value in year one only. Then, each year, you raise that number by the inflation metric for the year. And remember, he used real inflation metrics from each year. He did not just take 3% and apply it across the board. So in some years, that was 1%. In some years, it was 10%. But he used real inflation And this highlights a key distinction and a key misunderstanding that I myself had, despite learning as much as I thought I could about the 4% rule. But 
you are not blindly taking 4% of whatever the new value is every year. That means in a year where your portfolio is up, you're not calculating what 4% is of that higher number. It also means that when it's down, you are not shrinking your withdrawals. So here's a real example. Our monthly expenses right now are like $7,500 a month, and that's quite a bit. In order to retire this year right now, we would need $2.25 million invested according to the 4% rule. Once we've got two and a quarter, we can withdraw $7,500 a month and we should be fine because it's 4% per year. Now, that would mean that we would withdraw 4% of that number this year, $90,000 per year. And that would be our baseline. Now, let's say this year our portfolio goes gangbusters and we get a 10% return. So the total value of our portfolio now is $2,376,000 after our initial withdrawal and a year of growth. So for those of you who are attempting to do the fast math, like the meme of the confused woman with the equations floating around her head— we physically removed 90 grand from the portfolio, but the portfolio has gone up in value by $126,000. So we would not then calculate a new 4% figure by taking 4% of $2.376 million in year two, which is $95,000, by the way. No, we would just take our current $90,000 figure and increase it by whatever inflation was that year. So pretend it's 3% for this example. I know it's higher than that right now, but just for the sake of the example— to get $92,700 the next year. Now, I've never tested it the other way because I'm not that freaky in the sheets like Bill is, but it's important to note that that's actually how these withdrawals were calculated. The 4% figure is only calculated one time in year one. And remember, his calculations were based on a very specific asset allocation, 50% S&P 500, I believe, and 50% intermediate term government bonds. Sometimes the 4% rule is attributed to something called the Trinity study because a few years after Bill rocked the world with his epic Excel crazy shit, a group of three researchers replicated his study. And it became known as the Trinity study because they were working for Trinity University. But they used long-term high-grade corporate bonds instead of intermediate-term government bonds. And the result was that the 4% rule didn't work and you needed to use a lower withdrawal rate to get the portfolio to last 30 years. This highlights something very, very important about all of this that I think we tend to forget. This is not predictive in nature. It is meant to serve as a bit of a baseline so that we have something to use to calculate a rough estimate of how much money we're going to need in retirement and how we can be relatively risk-averse in drawing down those funds. Now, it's often quoted that the 4% rule only succeeded in 96% of scenarios he examined, meaning that obviously 4% of the time it failed. But actually, it's kind of interesting. He was using 4.125% for the study that generated the outcome of 96% success. But when you knock it down to a true 4% withdrawal, later studies showed that it had a 100% success rate over every single overlapping 30-year period from 1926 to 1994. Many of the hypothetical retirees studied actually would have died with way more money than they started with. I think there was some statistic about this, actually, that showed you're, you're more likely to die with way more money than you had when you retired um, than less. But anyway, success in the study was defined by not running out of money. 
Now, it's become rather popular recently to criticize Bankin's work in this day and age because we've been in such a consistently low interest rate environment, relatively speaking. And I see it a lot on social media and on the internet in general, people, smart people often saying, well, in the 90s, we had interest rates that were really high. And that's true. We did. They were really high. But we have to remember that when we look at this analysis, it spanned every year from 1926 to the mid-1990s. It was not just based on returns in the 90s. And in the 20s and 30s and 40s and even 50s, returns on treasury bonds looked kind of like they do today. I'll link a table of historical returns in the show notes, but I looked into this because I was like, I don't think this is right. And in the years between 1928 and 1960, so a full half of all years studied in the 4% rule research, the return rate on a T-bond was only above 4% in 12 of those years. Consider the returns specifically between the early 40s and the early 50s, for example. You've got negative 2.02, positive 3, 1.95, 4.66, 0.43, 0.3, 0.3, 0.3. That is an average return in T-bonds over that decade of 1.8% from the fixed income half of the portfolio. So sure, we saw outrageous returns on T-bonds in the 90s with them topping out at 23.48% in 95, but the returns in the 40s, that wasn't even included in the worst 30-year period that Bill Bangen looked at. Just for comparison's sake, I want to read you the T-bond returns from the past decade, starting in 2011 and going to 2021. 16.04%, 2.97%, negative 9.1%, 10.75, 1.28, 0.69, 2.8, negative 0.02, 9.64, 11.33, and negative 4.42. So that's an average return from the fixed income portion of a portfolio of 3.8%. Now we're barking. Okay. Serenity now. Deep breath. (laughs) Yep. Okay. Georgia. Between these, I swear, they don't do shit while I'm on meetings and working and then I start recording and Sam is running back and forth and Georgia's like, like, what is happening? Georgia, oh my God. Deep breath. She's really testing me today. I had to get up five times last night to let her out. I was like, this is, this is not okay. Okay, serenity now. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, I used that break to give Georgia some TLC, and we are ready to roll again. When we left off, I was making a point about average returns from fixed income portions of a portfolio being higher than in the 1940s. 
So while I understand that people look at the high rates in the 90s when the original 4% analysis was conducted and say, hey, there's no way that holds up because fixed income alone would have given you more than 4% per year in the 90s, the 90s only represented 14% of the total data included in the research. The conclusion was not reliant on 90s-level interest rates throughout the entire 70-year period. And I could be missing something. As my rich girls know, I'm not a financial planner. I'm not an expert investor. I literally just looked up this data online. It's publicly available via the internet. And it doesn't really add up, based on my understanding of it, of course, with the narrative that's being pushed that our low interest rate environment is going to permanently derail the 4% rule validity. That said, I think it's important to underscore again that this is not predictive. This is not a guarantee. And typically in investing, the things that blow up portfolios and plans are exactly the things that you would have never seen coming. Because had you seen them coming, you would have prepared for them to mitigate the risk. I once heard risk described as what's left over after you've already planned for all the things you're expecting to happen. But think about people in December 2019. Most investors would not have listed a global pandemic and 30% drawdown as the preeminent threat to their portfolios. And honestly, had the Fed not gone into major quantitative easing mode and flooded the country with fresh capital, we probably would be kind of low-key fucked right now. So at the risk of oversimplifying my take here, I think the fact that people are expecting low interest rates on bonds to be the reason the 4% rule stops working is almost by definition the reason it won't be the reason. I have a feeling if it stops checking out, it'll be for reasons completely unrelated because if we're worried about fixed income and we think, hey, that's that's going to take us completely off path, we can mitigate that risk by lowering our fixed income exposure. But a prolonged bear market or a crazy decade-long high inflation or maybe there's something else we can't really predict right now, I would think that would be more likely the reason that this doesn't work out. Anyway, okay, back to the 4% rule. So Bangin's original take was basically that he advised clients to have no less than 50% stocks, but no more than 75% stocks in retirement. That window was the sweet spot based on someone's risk tolerance, of course. I note that because I think it's interesting to hear him talk about it. I've heard him say that when he ran his analysis at 50% and again at 75% stock allocations, again, we're talking just S&P 500 here, the results weren't really that different. But if you dipped too far below 50% or went too high above 75%, things kind of broke. The other thing that I think is a really interesting little tidbit that I read recently about his analysis is that... At the time, he only used the S&P 500. And more recently, he's done another analysis that involves the small cap value asset class. So basically the polar opposite of S&P 500 in the sense that now, instead of talking large, probably overpriced companies, we're talking small, probably underpriced companies. And he found, are you ready for this? He found that the safe maximum withdrawal rate when you include small cap value in the portfolio went up to 4.5%. So another feather in the cap of diversification. My guest today, Brian Feraldi, is a financial educator who has published some really interesting stuff about individual stock investing, as well as my favorite content of his, which simply boils down to answering the question, why does the stock market go up? And I wanted to get Brian's take on some of this 4% rule-related discussion, because I think of a lot of it boils down, honestly, to your optimism that the stock market will continue to provide value for investors over time. So Brian, welcome to the Money with Katie show. Thank you so much for being here. 
Katie, awesome to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So first, Brian, can you give us a little bit of background about you? And then just for fun, can you tell us your biggest investing mistake? Sure. I graduated from college in uh, 2004, and I think like many people, uh, I was taught very little uh, formally about money, about investing, about the stock market, how any of that uh, that works. Um, and I say that, by the way, as someone that graduated with a business degree. So uh, it's amazing to me that I still wasn't taught much about stocks or uh, investing. When I graduated from college, uh, my dad handed me a copy of a very popular book at the time called Rich Dad, uh, Poor Dad. And I know that that has introduced a lot of people, myself included, into many of the concepts that are core to building wealth, right? Everyone's in business for themselves. Uh, the rich think about money differently. Um, your house is a liability, not an asset, uh, et cetera. And those concepts, for whatever reason, just immediately resonated with me, just immediately kicked off an absolute love affair with we wanted to learn everything I could about money, uh, investing, that led me to um, learn more about the stock market, and I've essentially been studying the stock market uh, ever since. So I started investing in 2004, and you're asking about my biggest investment mistake. Boy, we could fill a whole podcast with just mistakes that I have made um, in investing. I know. I'm but putting you on the spot a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I will say that my biggest mistake uh, that I've made uh, so far, I should uh, point out, came in about 2014. I made a, um, uh, an oil pipeline company my number one position, and I was so confident in this company. Company's uh, future that I also added on an options position on top of that. AKA, I made it my number one position um, with my with my the cash in my account, and I layered on um, leverage on top of that. And spoiler alert, I was not correct about this stock's uh, ability to only go up and uh, peak the trough. It then fell seventy percent because my initial thesis around the company uh, was wrong. So not only did my number one position decline seventy percent. I did that with leverage. Uh, I finally admitted defeat about um, 18 months uh, later, and that was, so far, the biggest loss I've taken to date. Love the humility, by the way. So the 70% was the actual loss, not like your levered loss? Like the loss was larger for you than 70%? Correct. Correct. Yeah. Oh the, my goodness. The stock peaked the drop dropped about seventy uh, percent, and I sold it. I think about sixty five uh, percent oh. loss. So yeah, I I learned uh, like every investing mistake I've ever made. Boy, did I learn a lot from that one. Oh man. <laughs> I'm like so tempted to be like, invest in index funds, my friends, but that's really not the point of this story. Um, okay, so this whole episode is about the 4% rule, but sometimes I think we lose the plot a little bit and we forget that the 4% rule is only possible because stocks do go up in value, generally speaking, over time. So can you talk to us a little bit about why stocks go up in value? Why do they have value? Yeah, what what the heck is a stock in the first place? Let's start there. So stocks, uh, a stock is just a a way to keep track of who owns how much of a corporation. The way that corporations are divided up is by creating shares of stock, and those shares are purchased or owned by the shareholders, and they provide an easy way for fi people to figure out how much of a corporation they own. Now, why the heck is that even important? Well, if a company makes money or uh, grows over time and, and grows its asset base, who owns that? profit? Who owns the asset that that company owns? The answer is literally the shareholders uh, of the company. So let's just make things really simple. 
Let's say, Katie, you and I uh, go into business together. We start our own candy company. We decide that this candy company is going to cost $100,000 to get up off the ground, and we're going to start selling candy immediately. Uh, you, Miss Moneybags over there, have $90,000 to invest in this venture. I only have $10,000 to invest. We combine our money together. We have $100,000. To make things easy, we're just going to create 100,000 shares of stock in this new company, and we're going to sell them for a dollar each. You buy $90,000 of them, I buy 10,000 of them, boom, our candy company is up and running. Well, let's say our candy company is successful because of course it's successful. And in the first year, we make a million dollars in profits. We invest 100,000, we make a million dollars in profit. Great. How much of that goes to you and how much of that goes to me? This is where shares really come in handy. Our business did a million dollars in profit. There's 100,000 shares outstanding. That means each share has a claim on $10 in profit per share. $10 in profit per share times your 90,000 shares mean you own, you have a legal claim on $900,000. I have a legal claim on $100,000. That's what stocks do. They make it easy to figure out how much of a company's profit uh, go to each individual shareholder. So let's let's think about that for a second there. So we started this this business. It generated in its first year a million dollars in profit or $10 in each share, meaning every share that exists has a legal claim on $10 in profit that first year. Here's a real quick question for you. If you are an outside person and you saw our business, would you want to become a shareholder of our company that literally just made $10 in profits in its first year? I would hope the answer is yes, right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> you own this share, and then that gives you a legal claim on a profit stream that hopefully can grow over time. That is where stocks derive their value from. They're derived from the value that they have a legal claim on a company's current and future profitability. Amazing. That's a really great explanation. For some reason, when you hear it in those terms of, hey, imagine we start a business and this is how much it costs and this is the profits, it becomes a lot easier to conceptualize why these things have value and why they would presumably go up in value over time. And we hear a lot about different indices that have funds that track them that we can invest in. What is the difference between the Dow, the NASDAQ, the S&P 500? Can you walk our listeners through the differences? Yeah, that's a really good question because those terms are thrown around in the media all the time as if people understand what they mean. And I, for myself, always heard them, but I had no clue what they meant. So I think it's really important to back up and just talk about what the heck they are. And let's talk about the, the oldest and most well-known, the Dow Jones Industrial Average uh, first. So back up uh, the time machine to 1896. Back then, just like today, there were publicly traded companies. And the way that people got information about the stock prices and information about those publicly traded companies was they were printed in a newspaper. So every day the newspaper would come out and have tables and tables and tables of stock prices. It was just a jumble of information. And the editor of the Wall Street Journal at the time, his name was Charles Dow. He wanted a way that he could take this table of information that was out there and summarize what happened in the market that day, right? It was just some stocks would go up, some stocks would go down. There was no way for him to convey to his readers, here's what happened overall in the market that day. So working with his partner, Edward Jones, the two of them came up with a solution. What they did was they added up the share price of 12 of the largest and most well-known companies at the time, the majority of which were industrial companies. And then they divided that total by 12. 
Now, what's it called when you add a bunch of numbers up and then divide by the total number? Uh, that is called the average. <laughs> Boom. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was born. And suddenly, uh, that number has been reported every day in the paper uh, since. And suddenly, Dow could now indicate to his readers, here's what happened to the Dow Jones Industrial Average today or this week or this month or this year. And that gave investors context into figuring out what happened in the market overall. Now, gradually, uh, the Dow uh, has been changed uh, over time. Uh, in the 1920s, it went from just tracking 12 companies to 30 companies. Uh, some of those companies went bankrupt, went out of business, and every few years, new companies come in. So if you look at the Dow today, it includes stocks like Apple and Disney and Home Depot and United Health Group, uh, et cetera. But the core of the Dow is still uh, what it was. It's given, it, it takes 30 company stocks, tracks their stock price, and it reports out a number that investors can use to figure out what happened with the stock market that particular day. The exact same thing is true of the S&P 500, which instead of tracking 30 companies like the Dow, tracks 500 companies. And the same thing is true of the NASDAQ, which is just an index that tracks the stocks that are on the NASDAQ stock exchange. But by and large, that's what those things are. They're simple ways for investors to figure out what happened in the market. Wow. I love this story of the inception of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. I had I had no idea that that's how it started, which is really interesting. And we I think we all kind of colloquially, to your point, use those terms to reference the stock market as a whole. So I'm curious if our retirement plans or our four percent guideline here that we're all kind of loosely abiding by, if that's all predicated upon the stock market continuing to rise, I think it stands to reason that. A good question or a reasonable next question would be, how often does the stock market go up? Yeah, this is a tricky question to, to actually uh, figure out because what most people are exposed to when it comes to the stock market, right? You open up the stock app on your phone. What do you see? All you see is price, right? Were, were stocks up today? Were they down today? And on any given day, essentially the odds of having stocks going up or stocks going down are essentially 50-50. They're like closer to 51%, 49%, but on any given day, the odds of them going up or down is essentially a, a coin flip. Now, what happens if we zoom out from looking at the day to looking at longer time periods? So dating back to 1871 to 2020, so over 150-year history, the odds that the S&P 500 went up, had a positive real return, meaning after accounting for the effects of inflation, if you held the S&P 500 for one month, the odds of it having a positive real return are 61% uh, of the time. So better than a coin flip. How about if we do one year? So you buy at any given point, you hold it for a year, your odds of making money in real terms are 69%. How about five years? Up to 81% of the time. Uh, 10 years, 89% of the time. And perhaps my favorite statistic of all, if you held the S&P 500 over a 20-year period, no matter what your starting date period is, you have made money in real terms 100% of the time. Capitalism works. That's what that means. <laughs> okay, so I guess the flip side then, conversely, how often does the market crash? Like, is that normal? Should people expect that? 
Yeah, if you look back at uh, the history of market crashes, which broadly speaking is when uh, stock prices fall, say, 30% or more from their recent uh, high, they, they happen on a semi-regular basis. I mean, I, I was born in, uh, in 82, and just within my, my lifetime, there have been four uh, separate periods when the market, um, when the S&P 500 fell more than 30% um, uh, peak to trough. This happened in 1987, uh, 2000 to 2002, 2007 to 2009, and most recently in February to March of 2020. Uh, so if you look back at why the stock market crashes, there's almost always some big macro event going on that is causing uh, widespread fear to spread amongst uh, investors. So in 2020, uh, it was COVID-19. In 2007, 2008, it was the, the, great, uh, the great Recession. The housing bubble uh, popped. 2000-2001, there was a dot-com crash as well as the September 11th attacks. Um, in the 1980s, there was high inflation rates. Before that, there was uh, the stock market crash was called by, by Watergate and the oil embargo. Uh, Vietnam caused a stock market crash, uh, et cetera. So there's usually some kind of big macro event going on that causes investors, by and large, to panic and to want to get out of the market. And in turn, that leads to more panicking and investors want to get out of the market. And the end result of that is stocks have a wild ride, typically on the downside. Oh, my God. It's so funny to hear you put it that way, too, that there's typically a big macro event, because I heard someone say recently that risk is what you don't see. It's what you can't control for. And a lot of those things, I think, fall into that camp. No one saw September 11th coming. No one saw the pandemic coming. And so the things that we typically think are going to cause the crash are more often than not, not the thing that actually does, because we can prepare for those things, the things that we're expecting to happen. So why does the market always recover? Why has the market always recovered from crashes? What drives that climb back up? Yeah, that is something that has always, always confused me. I think people intuitively understand why the market crashes, right? It's almost always there's something bad going on in the world and that crashes make sense. What never made sense to me is, well, why does the market recover? from crashes. That didn't make as much uh, sense to me. Uh, and there's a couple of, uh, of reasons why. Uh, perhaps the most counterintuitive uh, or um, of, of factors is that when markets crash, that's typically because the economy is doing something very, very bad. And when bad times are happening, unemployment uh, skyrockets, businesses are forced to make tough decisions. And during tough economic uh, times, companies and entrepreneurs are forced to innovate. They're forced to do things that they wouldn't have had to do in good times. I mean, think just back to March of 2020. In February of 2020, how many companies offered remote work? I don't know, 10%? How many offered it in April of 2020? Very true. 90%? I mean, it was like a massive shift that happened that all these companies suddenly had to accommodate work from home. Why? Because there was something really, really bad uh, going on in the world. If you look back, a lot of businesses are actually formed during periods of tough time. People are laid off. They have time on their hands. And maybe they're like, it's hard to find work right now. I'm going to start uh, a new uh, venture. So that's thing one. Tough times actually force people to be to be innovative. Uh, number two, during bad times, the weakest businesses out there tend to go belly up. And that means that they get acquired by stronger uh, businesses or they just fall out of the wayside uh, completely. 
eventually that means that they're going to lose their customers. And that means that stronger businesses can take market share during downturns. And once the economy start, finally starts to uh, recover, they emerge stronger uh, than ever. Uh, uh, third, I would say that the government uh, often steps in during periods of, of, of downturns to provide financial assistance. We saw this happen in 2008. We saw a ton of uh, government assistance in, in 2020. And that can help to stabilize um, revenue for a lot of businesses, which sets the stage for businesses uh, to recover and kickstart the cycle on the upside. But the reason that the stock market always rebounds from crashes is that business profits always rebound uh, from market uh, crashes. And business profits and stock prices are 100% correlated in the long term. The tricky thing is they're not at all correlated right. in, in the short term. Right. So as long, as long as businesses return to profitability and continue to grow their profits over time, the stock market will always recover. So fascinating. I've never thought about it as a culling effect that on one hand, you're going to have the weaker businesses going out of favor and, and leaving, but then you'll also have people starting new ones. It's really fascinating. And it almost paints this picture for me of a very natural cycle, almost like in nature where the wildfires will clear out the land. But like if you don't have a fire for too long, things overgrow and it, it creates problems for that ecosystem. So it's, it's really fascinating to think about it in that sense. So I th thank you for that. And Brian, you just had a book come out. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I, I, I recently wrote a book uh, called Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? Ha <laughs> ha, perfect. So if you want to hear more. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to answer that question for myself. And it was, again, the number one question that I had about investing when I first started. Again, it's intuitive why the stock market goes down. It never made sense to me why it went up in the first place. So I set out to write a very simple, easy to understand book that explains all the basic concepts that I didn't know when I first started. I love that. All right, y'all. So I will put Brian's book, a link to purchase his book in the show notes. Brian, apart from the book, where else can people find you? I'm very active on all the social platforms. I'm typically most active on Twitter and, uh, and YouTube. And those are just under my name, Brian Feraldi. Perfect. So we'll put the name and the links to those in the show notes as well. So you can continue to learn from Brian. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me, Katie. So, rich girls and guys, what does this mean for you? Like I said, I'm not an advisor. This is not advice, but I can tell you what it means for me. I am using this knowledge to do a few things. Number one, I am risk-averse. Like, I am really risk-averse. I have undiagnosed OCD. I'm almost positive, but that's a story for another day. And I am a catastrophic, obsessive ruminator. That is helpful context for knowing why, despite seeing all of the data, I still want to play it safe with the 4% rule. So rather than using the 25 times multiplier that tells you what percentage of your total portfolio will be your current annual spend by taking your annual spend and multiplying by 25, I'm using 30. This gives me five extra years, so to speak, of cushion to help lessen the chances that we will be forced to work again in a capacity that we don't control after we retire. That means we're actually shooting for around 2.7 million, not 2.25 million. So basically to reiterate, take annual spend, I'm multiplying by 30 instead of 25, which should give us some buffer. Number two, the other thing I'm doing, though, as a bit of a checks and balance, if that's what you want to call it on my own pessimism, is remembering that our monthly spending right now is actually pretty high. We're renting a really expensive house. We pay a chef service to make our meals for us, which easily costs more than $1,000 a month alone. 
In other words, we're living decently high on the hog right now. And while I like planning around that, the reality is that if we're no longer working, probably not going to be paying somebody else $1,000 a month to make our food for us. We're probably not going to be paying somebody to come clean our house. If we're not working, we can do that stuff ourselves. We don't have to pay for it. Our food budget will probably drop. I'm also expecting our housing budget to drop once we buy a home in a lower cost of living area. Our current rental is dope, but it is the equivalent of buying a house that would probably be worth around $800,000. And I don't really see that happening for us. We're, we're really not interested in tying up that much money in our primary residence. So I am planning for our current expenses, assuming that we may replace some of these expensive things in retirement with other expensive things, shout out healthcare. But I know realistically that right now we are living a very dinky lifestyle and we are spending accordingly and that it probably will not be this way once we retire and no longer have money coming in. Number three, I'm also conscious of our stocks to bonds breakdown. I haven't really figured out the ideal way to rebalance once we actually leave the workforce. And honestly, I'm still a little bit torn about it because even though we'll probably leave the traditional workforce in our 30s, we're not really planning to stop working altogether. And I think our time horizons for actually drawing down our assets in a meaningful way are a lot longer as a result of that. So I'm not sure yet what our asset allocation will be, but I have a feeling it'll be closer to that 75% stocks, 25% bonds mix than the 50-50. And I, I think that knowing that the 4% rule analysis was repeated and that 75-25 worked, it makes me feel better about that. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, we have to use the best metrics, the best information we have available to us to plan until we have better ones. And right now, this really does feel like the best we have. Even if you want to be like me and be a little bit cynical and a little bit pessimistic and make it a little more conservative and use 3.5% or 3% withdrawal rate instead in the first few years of retirement, going much lower than that reveals a pretty pessimistic outlook for the future and for the stock market. So much so that I would ask you, why are you bothering to invest at all if you think returns are going to be that low in the future? And at its heart, investing is a sport for optimists. Like, you have to believe the future is going to be better than the present. If you don't, otherwise, it doesn't really make sense to invest. So, rich girls, that is my not financial advice deep dive into the 4% rule and how I think about it. And I will see you next week, same time, same place on The Money with Katie Show. Our show is a production of Morning Brew and it is produced by the fabulous Nick Torres and me. Sarah Singer is our VP of Multimedia and Bean Dog is our Chief of Wolf who barks truly at the most inopportune times. And Sam Cat is our Chief Chaos Agent getting the zoomies and loudly knocking shit off my desk when he disagrees with the things that I say. Serenity now.